0: The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org.
1: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And it's a great honor today to welcome Dr. Doug Gurian Sherman, who is the Senior Scientist for the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Welcome, Doug. Hi. I really wanted to interview you because you are the author of Failure to Yield, Evaluating the Performance of Genetically Engineered Crops. And I called you yesterday in advance of this interview, and I said, you know, I'm a little concerned that the Halloween candy that our children are going to be eating is most likely sweetened with? GMO or genetically modified sugar beets and I wanted to know what the cost benefits were of this sugar and if parents should be concerned and what was your reaction?
0: Well because sugar is a a refined product you're not consuming the whole sugar beet whatever risks there might be are uh, probably considerably limited because of that. Beyond that there is some safety evaluation and you know the assessments so far have not suggested any you know harm from eating any of this. Our main concern is that the assessments that are done are not very rigorous. There's certainly Nowhere near what is done for conventional pesticides or medicines or even what are probably, you know, the closest comparison to genetically engineered crops, which would be, you know, food additives, which have much more extensive testing done than, than genetically engineered foods. So the question becomes, one, whether or not this particular crop or the food produced from it is safe to eat. But I think the bigger and more important question is, if this or some other genetically engineered crop would be, in fact, harmful to consume, would the testing that is now done required to some extent or asked for because, uh, by the regulatory agencies? Uh, would that be sufficient to give us, you know, a high level of confidence that the foods are safe? And and that's where I have the biggest problem. Our current Means of evaluating the safety of these foods, uh, from our perspective, is highly inadequate, and, and that's again where the problem comes in. Is not so much is this food safe or not safe, but uh, that there's significant uncertainties there. I would I would say that typically any given genetic genetic engineering modification of a crop will not necessarily change it in a way that could be harmful. It's hard to really guess you know, what percentage of these changes might be harmful. So I'd rather not do that. I, I would think that many of them may not be. But the question would, would, the more pertinent question is that if there's an occasional one of these crops that is, for whatever reason, harmful, will the the current testing uh, find that? And I think there's a very good chance, especially in the U.S., that the current testing regimes could miss this, um, you know, harmful effect.
1: Well, you know, I like to think that when we buy a certain food, we're actually buying into a much larger food system. So the purchase of a certain food is like a vote for the food production methods. And I think that with genetic modification, I, I'm curious about the benefit. Who benefits, and what are the risks? Do consumers benefit from genetically modified crops?
0: Well, there's certainly no direct benefits. We don't think that there's any significant decrease, for example, in food costs because of them. Whatever cost savings there are in, with some of these crops go almost exclusively to the, the big companies that supply the seeds and to some extent to the farmers that, that grow them. There have been claims about reduced pesticide use, chemical pesticide use, and that overall is, is a good thing. But um, what we're finding, um, especially in the last few years, is that while insecticide use has been reduced somewhat on some of these crops, herbicide use, weed killer use, um, is actually going up on the crops that are most widely grown, such as herbicide-resistant soybeans and, and cotton. Cotton, of course, is not a food crop, but soybeans is. And Over 90%, some recent estimates, in the high 90s percent of the soybean crop is genetically engineered. So the the herbicide use on those crops is now, uh, according to USDA data, higher than it was prior to the introduction of these genetically engineered crops. So on the one hand, we have slightly reduced, uh, somewhat reduced insecticide use on some of the crops, cotton uh, probably even more so in the US, but considerably higher herbicide use. So, you know, when you look at these supposed benefits, one after the other, they either don't exist or they're minor and they're offset often by potential harmful effects. Uh, One of the things that's often touted as being a benefit from these crops is that they have contributed to a reduction in tillage um, of the soil. But the proponents of that view basically cite you know, one, one study that was done, it was never peer-reviewed uh, for, for uh, soybeans especially, and that was contradicted by a study by uh, the USDA. So although it's widely reported even by scientists, we think there's really not good evidence that, that these crops really have a benefit in terms of uh, reducing tillage of the soil. So tillage of the soil in industrial farming systems, uh, increases erosion and, and uh, of course, takes fossil fuels to conduct the tillage, you know, et cetera. On the other hand, using organic systems or, you know, sim- systems that are similar to organic, you know, have the same benefits plus other benefits, and then don't require the use of synthetic pesticides at all. You know, overall, when we look at these benefits, one after the other, especially in the U.S. or the supposed benefits, we really find that there are very few and, you know, especially compared to other methods like organic, especially when considering how much investment has been put into these crops because they're very expensive to produce. You know, considering the fact that the industry is becoming much more monopolized, much more concentrated and therefore is gaining greater control over our food supply, you know, when you add all those things up, uh, we haven't really seen that this technology, you know, is anything near what it's stacked up to be.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting about the concentration of the seeds. I I know that I've spoken with some farmers who say that maybe if even if they want to grow non-GMO seeds, they can't even find them. They, you know, their choices are are dwindling. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, the GMO sugar beets themselves. When we say GMO sugar beets, we're really talking about a sugar beet that has been bred to be resistant to Roundup or, and that's an herbicide of course, but that the active ingredient in that product is glyphosate. Can you talk a little bit about the environmental impacts of this herbicide, as well as some of what what is termed as inert ingredients, but of course they're not really inert because they're having um, they're interacting with the main ingredient.
0: Yeah, well that's a, that's a very good question because one of the points that some of the proponents of the technology have, have made in recent months, I think they're they're they used to say that it reduces pesticide use, but some of the Some of the folks that uh, follow the issues more closely, I think, are having to back off from that statement since um, it's becoming, I think, pretty incontrovertible that uh, herbicide use has gone up. So what they say now is, well, glyphosate uh, or Roundup is a safer herbicide than the ones that were used before. I think the evidence for that is, is minimal, but... You're kind of comparing apples and oranges because there's all kinds of harm that any given pesticide or herbicide can cause. In the case of Roundup, uh, I think there's very good evidence that amounts, the am- amounts of Roundup that are typically can be applied to, to crops can harm a number of types of amphibians. And of course amphibians, frogs and salamanders and such are very important, you know, for controlling insects and bugs and pests as well as just, uh, you know, increasing biodiversity. Now, whether it's actually harming them in the field, nobody has really determined yet, which brings up another point, which in general, there has not been nearly enough testing of these crops and their consequences. But again, these preliminary data suggest that that, uh, there could be problems. There have been a number of studies that show that glyphosate and Roundup can have impacts on soil microorganisms, and that may even affect the nutrition of the crop, its ability to absorb nutrients from the soil. So the research has not been nearly extensive as it needs to be, but there certainly are indications that Roundup can can be harmful. The biggest selling point for it that a lot of people mention is that it's not as persistent, uh, you know, it tends to break down more quickly than some other herbicides, and that is a, a good thing. But many of the other herbicides do break down if, if in somewhat longer periods of time, you know, uh, not too much longer, and they're... You know, toxicity profiles are not too different than, than Roundup. So, you know, in general, these are toxins, so they, um, they, they will certainly affect and harm some organisms in the environment that are exposed to them.
1: Well, you've done a lot of research on the actual act of, of how we make a bioengineered plant. Can you describe a little bit what a genetically engineered crop is and how we produce one?
0: Essentially, um, without getting into too much technical detail, we can identify the individual genes that are uh, found in an organism, and there's a number of different ways to identify those genes and and at least some of what they do. And then with certain molecular tools, particular enzymes, we can snip out a copy of that gene and replicate it, usually in bacteria, so that we can produce a lot of it and then we can take the gene and using, attaching it to other types of DNA, uh, put it into the cells of a plant. And the, the usual way of doing it is that uh, only a minority of the cells pick up the DNA, so there has to be some way to select for those cells that are successfully, is what molecular biologists call, transformed. And then the, the cells are regenerated or, or re, redifferentiated into an entire plant plants have the ability to do that much more easily or readily than almost, you know, any type of animal, you know, to start with a few cells, kind of what you could consider almost to be the equivalent of uh, when we talk about stem cells uh, in in humans, the cells that have the potential to differentiate into all the different parts, you know, of a plant. so essentially that's what's done. But I think what's important to understand is that the process of genetically engineering the plant itself has consequences. First of all, the the process, because it's kind of disruptive of the uh, metabolism of the plant, the way way it's done to regenerate the the plants into a whole plant, is somewhat mutagenic in and of itself. So it often causes a number of uh, genetic changes, some of which can be harmful uh, in the plant. And then the gene that's added to the plant may come from a completely unrelated organism, often does, you know, a bacterium, a virus, um, an animal. And those genes are not normally part of the plant metabolism. So they can affect the the other genes in the plant in very unpredictable ways that can be uh, potentially harmful to us in terms of producing toxins or allergens or harmful to the environment, uh, you know, again by producing, you know, compounds that can be harmful to insects or animals in the environment or the soil. And some of those unintended changes can also affect the way the crop grows. And, and, and they may only, because genes are when and how they function in a plant or an animal, uh, is highly controlled, we may only learn about some of these unintended and harmful changes after the plants have already been commercialized and grown in the field. And and for the first generation of genetically engineered crops, we've seen you know several of those kind of unintended effects. In Bt, uh, insect-resistant corn, for example, the stiffener found in the cells of uh, in the stems of corn and trees called lignin is elevated to some extent. And nobody really knows why. It's completely unknown why th- this change in the metabolism of the plant would occur when you put a insect a bacterial toxin gene in that's intended to kill harmful in- pest, pest insects. And so, that, So these changes are unpredictable. With the new Generation of crops that are being talked about for drought tolerance and higher yield and, and such things. We think the likelihood of, of these unintended changes, whether harmful or not, are likely to be considerably higher and the scientific literature, you know, pretty clearly shows that. Because these, the, the genes, the traits that they're trying to manipulate, things like drought tolerance, are genetically much more complex and in, integrated in the plant. Than, uh simply putting in a gene for an insect toxin as was done for first generation or for herbicide tolerance. And so the likelihood that we're going to have uh, these unintended changes uh, that could have all kinds of consequences we think will be somewhat higher for these crops if they ever do emerge from the pipeline. So far we've been hearing about uh, drought tolerance and, and other things for, for a long time and none of them have yet been successful. Some of them are reported to be um you know within a few years possibly of being produced
1: If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Doug Gurian-Sherman, who is the Senior Scientist of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Doug, I have to ask you, you know, I just got back from the American Dietetic Association meeting in Denver, and in our big program guide on page three was a big flashy ad from Monsanto that was recommending genetically engineered foods as a way to feed the a growing population on our planet and this is the only way they say that we can possibly meet our food needs and I wonder especially with your authorship of the report failure to yield how can we as educators and consumers help people understand that this actually may not be the case at all
0: well um, what we tried to do in failure to yield and in uh, we will continue to do in upcoming reports is to really look critically using the best peer-reviewed science available at how these crops have actually performed. Rather than, you know, the hype, um, rather than focusing on some of the narrow risks, we thought we should really look at how well these crops are doing what, you know, we would hope they would do, which would be to increase productivity or make crops more tolerant of drought, you know, especially in the face of climate, climate change, you know, those kind of things and what we found so far at least you know for the US is that these crops have really not done what they've been advertised to do so yield improving productivity is often considered one of the most important traits that a crop can have farmers always want you know crops that will produce more than the older varieties and so uh, conventional breeding and other methods have been Incredibly successful over the decades in increasing the productivity of crops. Sometimes they're a detriment, but that's, you know, a whole other long story. Mm-hmm. But in any case, um, have been very, very successful in that regard. And when we looked closely at, at yield changes and what the current genes have contributed, we found that for the herbicide tolerant crops, soybean per, uh, primarily and corn, in the U.S., they really have, con- have not increased productivity at all. For the insect tolerant crops they've increased productivity for insect tolerant corn i should say we didn't look at cotton Um, they've increased productivity a small amount about three or four percent but over the same period of time about 13 years conventional breeding and other methods increased the uh, yield or productivity of corn about 24 or 25 percent so i think you know the main message here is that While genetic engineering, because it's attractive to the companies because they can patent these things and control the seeds and varieties much more, that's really their, you know, why this technology is so attractive to them, because of the control it allows them over the use of the seed and the sale of the seed. But when we look at the actual results and the productivity, conventional breeding, organic, other methods, have outperformed and continue to greatly outperform genetic engineering and we think will if if provided with sufficient public funding will continue to, you know, long into the future. So part of the message I think needs to be and what policymakers need to hear is that people understand that this technology, while it may contribute to some extent, certainly is not a panacea um, and uh, certainly has not performed as well as other agricultural technologies, and looking forward um, to the challenges that face it there's no reason to think that in the next five or ten years or even longer that it's going to out outperform these other technologies which are often being starved for public funding for research and development. so I think it's really important you know for people to understand that the prospects of this te- technology have been incredibly hyped to the public. And, again, I think the main reasons for that is that the industry finds this technology to be incredibly valuable because it's highly capital-intensive. Small companies really can't compete with them uh, because of the, the capital needs to develop these crops. There's a- estimates that it can cost 50 to $60 million to develop one of these crops. Mm. By comparison, uh, crops developed through conventional means may cost a million dollars or less, mm-hmm. you know, so a, t- a fraction of the cost. So the companies love this technology because they can patent the seeds and they can control the technology and, therefore, they can charge more for the seed than they, than they probably would be able to for conventional varieties, and certainly for organic, which they can't really control at all so there's tremendous motivations you know for economic reasons for the companies to push this technology but what we need to understand in the public is that the evidence that this technology is really anything near what it's cracked up to be is really non-existent
1: are you concerned that you know the genie has been let out of the bottle and there might not be a turning back
0: depends what you mean by turning back i mean you know we don't uh, our organization does not advocate that there should necessarily be no genetic engineering. We're not fundamentally opposed to it if it's adequately regulated, if it's done in a way that doesn't, you know, promote uh, the monopolization of our, you know, seed supply, you know, etc. The problem is right now those things are, are not occurring. So we're not necessarily opposed to the technology, you know, con- going forward under those Conditions, but for those that are, and for for us, to the extent that it's not fulfilling its promise and it's not being properly regulated, no, I don't think the genie is out of the bottle in the sense that it can't be better controlled and better managed and better regulated because there is so much interest in it, not only from the industry, but they've you know they've managed to convince our policymakers that it's necessary. I think it's you know, it would be very difficult to actually eliminate genetic engineering from our, you know, lexicon at this point, uh, you know, I mean, in, in terms of its use in agriculture. But what we should, you know, we should strive to do is really put the brakes on the excessive funding of it in, in the public because, again, while it may contribute to some extent to, um, you know, improving productivity and such, it really has not shown that it can do as well as other technologies. So there, there are there are public, you know, policy directions that are I think very important for us to take to control this technology much better. Labeling of food is is one thing that I think would be critically important. We don't know, you know, when it's in our food products and I think, you know, everyone should have a right to be able to choose whether their products are food products are genetically engineered or not.
1: Yeah, I totally agree and I'm really glad you brought that up because as a consumer and a consumer advocate, I think, as you say, you know, we have a right to know what's in our food and what we're putting in our bodies. And even if that particular food may or may not cause harm, again, we're voting for an entire system. It's almost like voting, you know, do we want to patent seeds? And if you don't have a problem with that, then go ahead and buy the genetically modified food. But if you have a a deep philosophical belief system that you know you really don't like the technology or you don't you don't want to help support it then at least if a food was labeled a consumer would have the choice and i wonder do you have any ideas on how we could move in the direction that the eu of course the european union does indeed label gmo foods how can we get there
0: well, for, for one thing, I think there's a low level of awareness in our elected officials that people may be concerned about this, so uh, that's always a good place to start. And it's probably surprising if, if elected officials start hearing about it enough, they start paying attention, so that's that's one place to start. But I want to back up a little bit, because there is one additional concern. I'm all for labeling, and I, I, I think, as I said, it should be done. But one problem, additional problem is that because... You know, genes spread around through pollen or seed mixing or whatever that even if you ha- have a crop that's supposedly not genetically engineered or, let's say, corn that is not genetically engineered, we found in our own studies that some of that is o- almost always going to be contaminated or, or a high, high percentage of it is going to be contaminated. Contamination may be at low levels, but it's, it's, uh, it's almost always there. So labeling is one step in the right direction, but if people are really concerned about this. They do need to be aware that once a particular crop has been genetically engineered and commercialized, um, inevitably there's going to be at least some contamination of of almost the entire crop. So it's very difficult to get corn now, probably even organic corn that doesn't have at least a little bit of, gene- uh, of genetically engineered material in it.
1: Mm. Th- that frightens me, frankly.
0: Well like i said i mean the lower the levels of course if there is potential harm you know it's less likely to be as harmful that's not a lot of comfort but um, right. and especially when we talk about you know people are trying to engineer crops to produce pharmaceuticals yeah. and those are things we know you know if you're not tended to take heart medicine it's probably not a good idea to be eating lipitor or something in your cornflakes right and so so that's that's a whole other area where you know contamination could be Extremely problematic, and it is concerning, and we need to do more to to really address that kind of problem.
1: Well, Doug, our our time has flown, and I want to direct our listeners to your website, which is the Union of Concerned Scientists, and that's www.ucs. USA.org and you can download the report that you are the author of about failure to yield and more information about genetically engineered crops and I want to thank you so much for your time today and I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri uh, is there any parting word Doug that you'd like to leave us with?
0: No, but just that I think it's important for people to be involved in where their food comes from and how it's produced It's such an important aspect of our lives, and we often take it for granted. So, you know, that's a good start for people, and, uh, you know, I want to thank you for
1: for having us on and, and letting us talk about this. Thank you very much. Okay, goodbye. Bye.